you'd open your Bible with me this morning to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and we are going to consider the parable of the wheat and the tares. In keeping with recent weeks, trying to make these things all interconnect, even as some of you have asked me, when are we going to start the book of Judges? The book of Judges is in my mind, in my heart, and we're headed there, but I'm not really prepared just yet to start that. So in keeping with recent weeks, we've studied what we lost in Adam's fall and how by faith in Christ, all of that and even more is restored by being in union with him. Last week, we saw that having now been found in Christ, we are to seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And this week, I want to take that just a step further Now that we've been raised with Christ to seek the things which are above, we know that that is best done with others who have experienced regeneration, who have been converted, who are also trusting in Christ. But this parable teaches us that there is no perfect assembly in which to pursue Christ. And what I mean by that, as we read this parable... It's going to become very evident and very plain that there are tares amongst the wheat. There always will be. Nothing can prevent that. We're going to see that out of this text. No amount of solid biblical gospel preaching can prevent it. It will greatly hinder it and deter it, but it will not absolutely prevent it. No amount of discipline no amount of careful discipline will prevent it. This is something that the people of God must learn at Christ's own word to persevere in and see it as being for our good. You've all heard the tired but true saying, there is no perfect church, right? That's true of this church. It's true of every church that you've ever been a part of or every church that or any church that you will in the future be a part of. There are, however, differing degrees of purity between every local church. And that is our duty and responsibility before the Lord. We are to walk in the light that he has given us and to strive after personal and even corporate obedience in all things being regulated by the scriptures. So this parable this morning that we're going to consider together instills hope in that process. Don't lose heart. In other words, when tares show themselves to be tares. And so I want you to read with me this parable, and this is one of two parables that Jesus gives an explanation to. The first being the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower. Jesus interprets and explains that at the request of his disciples. This parable is the same. First, we're going to read the parable itself, and then we'll later consider its interpretation. So beginning in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, another parable he, Jesus, put forth to them. And he said, the kingdom of heaven 
is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came in and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go out and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather together the wheat into my barn. And then if you skip over the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of leaven, you get down to the 36th verse where the parable we've just read is explained. Verse 36, Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Let me just stop there and make a point of application here. The desire of the disciples to rightly understand this parable should be your desire and mine to the same degree. They had just heard Jesus say something to them in parable. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But they wanted to really know what it meant. Explain it to us. Unfold it for us. Unveil the glorious thing that you have just taught us. Jesus does just that. He said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Would you pray with me? Father, in grace and mercy, would you give us ears to hear? In grace and mercy, would you answer this request of your disciples again? Lord, explain this parable to us. Give us an understanding. Show us more of your glory in it. We pray and ask it in your own name. Amen. So let's talk about the, the word parable for just a moment. The word parable literally means to place something alongside of something else in order to compare them. It's the Old Testament equivalent of a proverb what we just read out of Proverbs 23. A parable very often is a fictitious narrative that teaches a central lesson 
And that's an important point of interpreting parables. There is usually, though there are a few that differ, there is usually one thing being taught by a parable. And not many different things. So it's best to see a parable in its entirety and not just dwell on one aspect or another and try to pick it apart and learn many things. But we need to have an understanding of parables that Jesus gives us a little earlier in this same chapter. There is a very real and distinct reason why Jesus taught in parables. Most would say or think that it, it, that it is to make things clear and simple. Using the plain language of the day and illustrations taken from the activity of the day. And there is truth in that. But a greater understanding of why Jesus used parables is found in chapter 13, verse 11. If you'll look there and read with me. Actually going to begin in verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Now, let me encourage you. Deal plainly, simply, and honestly with Jesus' words. Any preconceived ideas or notions need to be set aside. And just look at the words on the page. Jesus said to his disciples, it's been given to you to know, and it has not been given to others to know. And with that, we simply back away from that truth and say, amen. The Lord knows. He is sovereign. He is provident. And we trust him to do right. If you keep reading in verse 12, for whoever has to him more will be given and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even with what he has, will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Notice Jesus pronounces blessing upon the eye that has been opened and the ear that has been opened. Psalm 40 hearkens to this when it says, the psalmist says, my ears you have opened. And that verb literally means to dig out. The Lord has, has dug out an entrance for his truth into your ear, thereby into your heart. Or less you would not have heard, nor would I. We are all products of God's miraculous, life-giving grace by giving us an ear and an eye to hear and perceive spiritual truth. He goes on there to say, Assuredly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
And so the purpose, as stated by Jesus here in this section of Matthew 13, tells us that his using parables, though they were simple in form, simple language, and simple illustrations, his intent was either to conceal himself or to reveal himself. Say that another way. His intent was to make himself known to some and to hide himself from others. Now, aren't you thankful that that responsibility hasn't fallen on me or you? We know the Lord does all things well. He does all things perfectly. And you can think of it in this this way. I read this this week and it was helpful. I want to pass this on to you. The parables seem to wrap up the glory of Christ. You've known what it's like to receive a gift that's wrapped in paper, concealing what's inside. That's a parable. There is a great truth contained in it. But for the moment it's being veiled... And if the Lord opens your eye and your ear, then by faith you can take off the outer covering, the paper, and see what's inside. And what's there is a glorious thing to behold. It's the same truth. This this parable is teaching us the nature of the kingdom of heaven, or what we might call the nature or makeup, what comprises the visible church on earth. And we need to define some terms before we go any further. You'll hear the difference sometimes in the visible or the invisible church. Today, as we said here this morning, we comprise the visible church. I cannot perfectly discern your heart, nor can you perfectly discern mine. We sit here alike, visible in the assembly or the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the invisible church is what we would call the true or the real church, which the hearts of men and women who comprise it are truly discerned by Christ. There is no mistake in his view of who is really in him, trusting him by faith and having turned from their sins. Simply stated, we just don't have that type of discernment. That doesn't dismiss us from being careful with one another. That doesn't dismiss us from being prudent. That doesn't dismiss us from having a real desire that this church be comprised of believers only in its truest sense. We don't want to welcome a known wolf into the sheepfold. But sometimes they make it in nonetheless. And that shows our deficiency and shows our inability to perfectly discern. And so when he says the kingdom of heaven is like this, there is a comparison And each one of these points has a specific interpretation. We've read that. We'll go through it again. But I want you to notice before, I've already said this, but I'm going to say it again here. 
The reality of this cannot be prevented. And that points to the subtlety of Satan. The subtlety of the adversary of all truth. The scripture says that he disguises himself as an angel of light. The scripture says that he is wily. The wiles of the devil in Ephesians chapter 6. And one other thing about this adversary or enemy, notice that Jesus does call him the enemy, both in the parable and in its interpretation. Satan is and is the adversary of all truth. Before we look at the parable in its broader form, I want you to notice something about his work. It says simply that he came in while men slept. And sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. He didn't stick around. The reason? He didn't need to stick around. The unregenerate heart of man requires very little cultivation to produce rotten fruit. So he sowed the tear and went on about his business to sow it somewhere else. On the other hand, the truly regenerate heart takes much, great cultivation, much care to produce fruit of the godly sort. And one other thing in general before we look at this in particular is notice that the wheat and the tares, the tares here represent something to the physical eye that so closely resembles wheat that in its beginning and early stages, it's undiscernible. Notice that it wasn't until the crop produced that their difference was made known. Sometimes I've thought of this parable, probably some of you have thought of it as well, as the tares are easily discernible. They're weeds. Right? And, and the definition of a weed is, and I, this is not mine, a definition of a weed is a plant that causes economic loss or ecological damage and is undesirable where it is growing. And if any of you garden or if any of you are farmers, you've dealt with weeds. A real weed is very recognizable from its earliest beginning as not belonging in the garden. A tear, the word that is used here and referred to, is not so. This is not like, most of you know what a milk thistle is, right? Ed knows. A milk thistle is immediately discernible for what it is. You know immediately this is not corn. You know immediately this is not what I planted in the ground. A tear, on the other hand, and this is the subtlety again of the adversary, wouldn't it be nice if it were different? But the truth is, a tear is almost undiscernible in its early and beginning stages. The only way that you can discern that it's a tear is by the fruit that it produces. And so let's look at what Jesus says about the existence of both of these. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. Now the interpretation there is, if you skip over, 
He who sows the good seed is the son of man. And I take the good seed here to be a little different than the seed in the parable of the soils or sower. There it is very plainly and plainly obvious that the seed is the gospel that's being preached and scattered. Here, a little different. The good seed here are true and real converts who have benefited from the hearing of the gospel, who have come to faith in Christ. So he has sowed the good seed in his field. Again, the interpretation tells us that the field is the world. And so while these things are true inside the visible church, certainly they're true in the larger sphere of the world as well. And notice it is while men slept that the enemy came. How often do we find real physical and spiritual harm being done in the Gospels while men sleep? How often are we exhorted to be watchful? How often are we exhorted to be awake and aware? But anytime we sleep, anytime we are undiscerning, anytime that we are, have let our guard down, notice the enemy comes in and sows tares among the wheat and then goes his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. Most likely the servants in verse 27 are the same ones who were asleep in the previous verse. But now that things are are visible and now that they are awake and aware, there is the desire to take action. Which teaches us a great lesson. And you can apply this to almost every sphere of life. Be proactive instead of reactive. A good example of this, and I've learned this, my wife has learned this, sometimes the hard way. But those things that your two and three-year-olds say, they will say them when they're 12 and 13 and 22 and 23 if you don't stop them when they're two and three. Be proactive. Don't wait until you have to react. That is the attitude of these here in verse 27. Now they see the activity of the adversary, the enemy. They see the real damage And the potential. And so now they want to do something. They came to the owner and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Notice there is a little bit of blame shifting here at the beginning. Is this your fault? And we know that the interpretation of the parable tells us that the sower is Christ himself. So the answer to this question is absolutely not. Jesus Christ did sow good seed in his field in the world. And so the question follows, how then does it have tares? So he replies, an enemy. An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? We're ready now. We're awake. 
we see what's taking place. We can go and gather them all up. But what does the master say? He says, no. Notice before we read it that the master's greatest care, his greatest compassion, his greatest concern is given to the wheat is given to the good seed that he has sown. He says, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say, and notice that, the discerner of all hearts speaking, at the time of the harvest, I will. I will say to the reapers, the interpretation tells us the reapers are the angels. I will say to them, first, gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. And gather the wheat into my barn. Before we go, at least in my Bible, turn the page to the interpretation of the parable I don't want us to lose sight. More information follows, but I don't want us to lose sight of these two very different, even drastic ends. They couldn't be more polar opposites. The tares are bound and burned. The wheat gathered into the barn. Now, isn't that our hope as Christians? We're looking forward to that day coming at the return of Christ when he gathers the wheat into the barn. But to look at the interpretation, we've dealt with a few things already. The sower of the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the wicked one. Notably, Jesus uses sons of kingdom, sons of the wicked one. The sons of the kingdom are those who, uh, who give evidence and are characterized by the kingdom itself. So too the sons of the wicked one. They have the characteristics and the attributes and even bear the fruit of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. Let's talk about the word harvest for a moment. Every farmer, every gardener looks forward to the season of harvesting. When all of your toil and labor in the garden or the field has come to fruition. Notice that both the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the wicked one have a season of harvest. And again, as we continue reading, they're drastically different. The sons of the kingdom, their, their works 
performed in Christ, those good works prepared beforehand that they would walk in them, Ephesians 2.10, reiterating the point that we are not saved by works, but saved unto good works. There is a time for the harvest of all of these things to come in, but yet also the sons of the wicked. All of those things, they will reap a tremendous harvest as well. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, we're in verse 40. As the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. Now, I want you to notice the next part of this sentence. This is graphic description. This is coming from the words of Jesus. These are not my words. I haven't, nor, have any, nor has anyone else sat down and tried to describe the agonies of hell. This is coming to us based upon the authority of Jesus Christ. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is the perpetual, even eternal awareness of eternal punishment. You know, some people would like to tell you and believe and quieten their own conscience by saying that when you die, that's just the end. We term that annihilationism. You're just annihilated. You just cease to be altogether. You won't find that in the scripture. You won't find it at all. What you do find is a conscious awareness throughout all eternity of one of two things. And notice how descriptive Jesus is. He didn't have to be this descriptive, but he was. He didn't have to paint such a grim picture in the hearers of those that hurt him, but he did. Some recoil from this and say, we shouldn't frighten men into the kingdom. We can be truthful with them of what the end will be if they don't come to Christ. And then trust the Spirit of God to use that truth in their own heart and mind. And so let me just say as plainly as I can, and just simply reading the verse again, but making application of it this way, if you are not in Christ, if you have not come to Him in faith, if you have not believed the message of the gospel, then this is your end. As surely as you are here 
living and drawing your next breath, this will be your end. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth after having been cast into the furnace of fire. Jesus speaks much of Gehenna or hell, the lake of fire, as the eternal place of torment for those who will not come to him. Don't doubt it. And you are right to flee from it. Just make sure you're fleeing in the right direction. The only way to not have this be in your future is to be found in Jesus. Remember what Adam lost in his fall? Original righteousness, communion with God, life, physical, eternal. Those are the same things that we have found by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have an original righteousness. We have an imputed righteousness, one that has been given to us. Our communion and fellowship is restored. Our life has been restored. We now again have the hope of eternal life, but eternal life shining forth as the sons of the kingdom. That's what we found in Christ. And so as as greatly as I can, with every earnest imploring and begging, even, come to Christ. He will not turn you away. And perhaps you say, well, my mind is all wrapped up in these in these doctrines that I read in the scriptures about the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, no doubt they're there. And we say amen to them. But what you also find if you read honestly the scriptures is that much is placed upon the responsibility of man. And I like this illustration. You've probably heard it. It's good to be reminded of it. In the scriptures, you think of a train track and the two rails of the train the two rails of the track. On one hand, you have divine sovereignty. The other, you have the responsibility of man. As you stand over them and look down, you see them both. They run parallel. And as you look 20 feet in front of you or even 100 feet in front of you, you still see both of them and they're running parallel. But if you cast your eye down a bit and you look on the horizon, what do you see? It looks like they perfectly merge together, doesn't it? And so we have to keep a proper understanding. This is what we see here and now. I see them both. But I believe by faith that down there at the end, they perfectly come together in the heart and mind of God. Logically, perhaps they don't make sense to go together. That's why people would ask Charles Spurgeon, how do you reconcile these two things? And you know his response, don't you? As Spurgeon only could, he says, friends don't need to be reconciled. There is no antagonism between the two. The finite nature of our minds not being able to fully comprehend them doesn't negate either one of them being totally true. And so, do away with that thinking 
of trying to reconcile these things in your mind and do the thing that you're clearly told to do in Scripture, and that is come to Jesus. Come, ye sinners. We sang it, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to receive you, full of pity, mercy, and power. Come without price, come without money. All you need is to feel your need of Him. And in grace, in grace, He gives even that. So we've talked about the grave end of the one. Being cast into the furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Notice this is the greatest expression of physical pain. Crying out in an almost incontrollable response to the agony being felt. Now, the gospel is best preached, we're told, and we believe, on the backdrop of the worst news, right? What we've just looked at is the worst news. That which ends in the weeping and wailing of teeth is, gnashing of teeth, is the worst news. Now, let's hear the good news. The good news tells us, then, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. In the time of harvest, you will be brought into the barn of your heavenly Father. And there we will remain. Perfectly stored, safe in Him. Never again to experience the difficulty of living with tears all around. Now, Let's keep a proper perspective. In this life, we are to engage those tears, to see those tears as being objects of our compassion, our pity, our winsomeness, our evangelism. We're not to go live in a monastery as a monk and try to get away from the tears. We're to recognize that in this life, we have been placed among them for our own sanctification and for their good. But thank God, there is a day coming. No sin will be present in any form. Not in remaining sin that assaults me in the depravity of my own heart, nor in the form of the tear next to me enticing me to sin. We will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's interesting that we read that to start our service as well. Let me just say plainly, if there is any inclination in you at all, faint as it may be, to come to Christ... That's of Christ. If there is any want in you at all, that's mercy. 
And that's grace. And especially if there is an overwhelming sense to come to Christ, that's of grace too. That's of his mercy as well. And it is always wrong. Always wrong to ignore it. Ignoring thinking, well, my desire is not great enough. Again, if it's there in any shape, form, or fashion, act on it. Act on it. And I'm thankful for those that that inclination is so strong you can do nothing but act on it. And may God get you to that point very soon. Praying that he has given an ear to hear and that you will hear him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy. We thank you for your sowing of good seed. Father, we pray in grace, mercy, and power that you would sow more here this morning. Sow it in our families, amongst our children, of any age. Father, we've been reminded again of the drastic end of mankind apart from Christ. Lord, would you use this sober moment? We're considering things right now that will quickly pass, quickly fade. The affairs and busyness of life will once more come in and dim and dull these things in our hearts. Would you use the soberness of this moment for your own glory? Father, we're thankful, those who are numbered in Christ, to look forward to that time of harvest when we will be gathered into your barn, safe and eternally secure. To Christ be all praise and glory, we say. And we say it in his name. Amen.